0: Welcome to another edition of Turn Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, Michael Imperioli of The Sopranos, of uh, Goodfellas, of Basketball Diaries, of Summer of Sam writing fame and uh, executive producing fame, and more on that He also does an incredible podcast, Talking Sopranos. More on all that in one second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, podcast at gmail.com that is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire. Thank you so much, Tristan, for giving us Sopranos Week here at Turned Out of Punk. Uh, and he will get the message to me. He also runs a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Both of those are found uh, at Turned Out of Punk on their respective platforms. You can find me on social media, at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way of supporting the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that we do this thing appear uh, on this podcast each and every week, uh, sometimes two or three times a week. Say, you know, like, lately, maybe not as much, but, you know, we do it like that. Uh, speaking of support, this thing is uh, also supported through the f- efforts of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just, you know, don't don't do it out of your own pocket anymore. And I I can't thank them enough for that. Also, can't thank enough the fine folks over there at patreon.com slash turnitapunk who also make this thing possible each and every week. So thank you to both those places for making me able to do this for you. And uh, that is that. On to today's show. Today on the show, Michael Imperioli. Now, Michael is someone who has been making the rounds as of late uh, because of this sort of sudden interest in his musical taste. And I have to admit that I am very interested in his musical taste, so much so that when Tristan suggested getting him on the show, I was like, absolutely. I saw him, you know, talk about this thing and that thing. And also, I finally got to check out his band, La Dolce Vita, which he, is go- he goes into the name change on the episode itself. But a band that I'd never heard before and, and and really a great band. You know, here's this guy who once again, you appreciate this person for one completely different side of their uh, creative output. And then here he is doing something else, you know, equally as kind of cool uh, on the other side of things. So, you know, Michael is someone that uh, I was very excited to sit down and talk to. Uh, this unfortunately, came uh, hot on the heels of finding out about a passing of a friend. And in retrospect, I probably should have postponed doing this because my head was uh, a million different places at once. So my apologies to you and my apologies to Michael that uh, you know I wasn't wasn't in top form for this because this is this is a really fun conversation. Now, Michael is a deep music fan and a deep music head. and I think it's amazing that, you know, you've got, Drea also on The Sopranos. Check out her episode last week. You know, into completely different stuff than Michael's into. Yet both of them are kind of in the same you know time frame and geographical area. There are some also some uh, wicked connections to other episodes. You're here in a second. Anyway, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I don't think I have any notes to get to. If there are, I apologize, but that's it. Anyway, check out the Dre episode as well. Sopranos week has been a lot of fun. Once again, Tristan, I love you. Thank you for doing this for me because I'm a fan. You know, there's no other way to put it. I'm a huge fan of the show and huge fan of of Michael and Dreas. So yeah, like this is this has been you know kind of a dream come true for me getting to find out this stuff about them. You know, I you know who who'd have thought who'd have thought when you're watching this show that these two people probably could have made you a pretty killer mixtape, you know? Anyway, I'm not going to ramble on, check out Michael's great podcast, Talking Sopranos, um, you know, a lot of insight into that show, and uh, yeah, that's it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Michael Imperioli on Turned Out Upon. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Well, I'm a huge fan of your work, But also, I'm really excited to talk to you about all the punk stuff you've been dropping on various places in social media lately and, of course, on your podcast. But also, I want to talk to you about La Dolce Vita because I think more people need to check out this band, a fantastic band. But i got to start this thing the way they all start off, which is, Michael, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Well, the first
1: time I came across it, I didn't know what it was, and I didn't even listen to it. There was a guy, when I was like eight or nine there was a guy in my neighborhood who had the the first New York Dolls album and I didn't really know what the hell it was (laughs) the cover Um, it was really not nothing I had really seen before and nothing I really wanted to explore at the time Um, I remember I bought an issue of I think it was cream magazine I remember looking at pictures of these people that I had never heard of like Iggy Pop and 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 um you know when I was like 12 I I was a really late bloomer when it came to music mm-hmm. and I really was before during you know junior high and high I really listened to like the Beatles and what was on the radio or like AM radio then you know, and, and FM in and high school like classic rock stuff like I really was not The first concert I ever went to was Jethro Tull.
0: That's an awesome first show.
1: That was a good show at Nassau Coliseum, Long Island. That was a a really good show. And then I saw, I think I saw Journey on there, that big giant tour they had, the Frontiers Tour, one of those tours. And then, so it really wasn't until when I finished high school, I went to New York City and started going to acting school. And I was in acting school with a lot of, People who are most mostly people who are older than me because I was I graduated young, I was like seventeen and I was in school with people in their twenties, thirties, and forties. But I had a friend who's a filmmaker, an indie filmmaker now. His name is Tom Gilroy, and he was a DJ at Boston College, and he had just graduated. So he had and and this was the early eighties, late seventies, and his the college station there brought a lot of band booked a lot of bands in the. And, and put them on the radio and interviewed them when they came to Boston. So he knew a lot about, us, but particularly now we're talking 83. So, like, you know, you're getting into the post-punk, mm-hmm. new wave almost area. And that was kind of my first exposure, like Echo and the Bunny Even U2, and um, The Smiths, a little bit like in 85 um, or 84. And it kind of started expanding from there and going backwards into the 70s and what happened in in England and particularly, and even more so in New York, because the New York punk scene is really what I'm most um, passionate about.
0: Well, getting back to before you moved to New York, where were you kind of discovering, you know, Jethro Tull and Journey, and was it from the radio or was it kind of peers around you?
1: Yeah, friends, friends, and then high school and the radio and stuff like that, and the Stones a little bit. I mean, I wasn't even that huge of a Stones fan. I was a bit, you know... So I was a real late bloomer when it came to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, to be <laughs> honest. I mean, I was pretty... I was into sports. And then I just stopped, you know, I didn't go to college, I, I was, you know on track to be like pre-made and I did like a complete 180, and um, found myself in New York city around a lot of artists and in, in the East village starting to go see bands, you know, at CBGBs and whatever else clubs that were happening in the eighties and nineties and stuff.
0: So going back to that friend that had that New York dolls record, were there any other kids that were kind of punk rockers around you? Like were you, were there, was it, or was that just like kind of, a it was one in way? my high school,
1: he was like a he was like a very strange kid. I mean, I'm this is when I was like like I said eight or nine, so he must have been like eleven, and he was just one of those you know would blow up like cats with fireworks and shit like that. He was one of those like very strange people, <laughs> and he was into you know smoking pot and stuff, which you know I, we weren't. We were like nine years old. We were yeah. like playing football in the street or whatever we were doing, um, but. Um, yeah, so, uh, and then when in high school there was one kid who was a, you know, so I was in high school from 79 or 78, 79 to 83, I guess. And there was one kid I remember who had like a, you know, like a punk blonde, you know, like punk haircut and dressed kind of punk. And he was the only person. I went to high school, I grew up very close to the city, but when I went to high school, it was like an hour north of New York City. So he was pretty outrageous for the time and place.
0: And going back to when you got to the city, what was the first kind of concert you went to in New York?
1: Oh man, you know, I it's I think probably
0: the Ramones. Oh, that's awesome.
1: Probably the Ramones, yeah. Um, that was a big one. Grace Jones. I remember seeing Grace Jones play at a club one night, which was pretty. Uh, which is pretty wild. R. E. M. was an early concert that I saw. Um, mm, 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 mm. Um, fuck. I'm so, I'm so like spacing out right now. I'm blanking out. You know, I saw a lot of bands that were not known. Like I was going to a lot of clubs seeing bands that were just playing, you know what I mean? That, you know, or friends' bands and bands that never went anywhere. Um, uh, Miracle Legion was a big band for me when I I first saw them somewhere in the mid-'80s at Maxwell's, which was a a great club in Hoboken, New Jersey.
0: The legendary club.
1: Yeah. We used to go see a lot of shows there, and and Miracle Legion became a big um, favorite of mine. Echo and the Bunnymen was a big... I saw them in uh, New York... That was a big one. Um, Talking Heads, that was a good show. And then, you know, then it kind of moved into the more alternative scene. And I I, I really started getting into it then with like the Pixies Galaxy 500. And um, bands like that, that started getting, you know, that as that wave started. The Smiths, I saw the Smiths in 86 on the Queen is Dead tour. Oh, that was awesome. pretty amazing. That was one of the best shows I, 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 I remember.
0: I bet. Well, you get to New York it's such a fascinating time because, you know, it's post, like, literally post-punk, you know, like, and it's kind of the arrival of that New York hardcore stuff. You also have, obviously, rap is, is huge, but you also have, like, stuff like No Wave Happening and, like... Yes. You know, Gigi Allen. Like, it's just such an, a, a melting pot of cultures of all types.
1: Yeah. Oh, The Bush Tetras was a great show. I forget when I saw them, but that that's one of my favorites. Um... And as well as Suicide, who I got to see. And that was a really incredible show. I don't remember. Uh, I saw them at a place called The Cooler in the 90s, which was on a weird place on 14th Street. But I saw them before that. I don't remember where. Maybe it was CBGB's even. Did
0: Um, you take in? I know you're friends with Lydia Lunch. Did you see any of her bands, any of that No Way stuff that was kind of happening around then?
1: Once a long time ago, yeah, um, uh, yeah, I I liked the the no wave vibe and this you know the scene and what they were trying to do. I think it was, it's a very important time in music in a weird way because they were really trying to. A lot of jazz got incorporated into punk in a way and came out of you know and no wave kind of, there was was definitely flavors of free jazz and experimental jazz that kind of merged with punk at that time.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's definitely like, like that's the true melding of low art meets high art in like a very direct yeah. way. Yeah, exactly. What was kind of like your impression of the stuff that was happening there? Cause it's also like New York in the eighties is, is notorious, you know, and a lot of people that have come on this show over the years have talked about how, how volatile that city was.
1: Yeah. Well, it was very different, you know, um, there were big swaths of Manhattan that like at night were like empty. Like if you walked, I, for a while, when I was like 17, 18, I lived with my grandparents, but I was working in the city. I was working in like Tribeca before it was really Tribeca and, and and Chinatown. And some nights when I got off work at like midnight, I'd walk from Chinatown to grand central station to go get the train. Um, And if you would walk in, like, if you walked up Sixth Avenue, say, when you hit, like, above 23rd Street to, like, you know, there was, like, nothing open. And, like, it was, like, a wasteland almost for for blocks, which is really hard to conceive of now um, because everything's so busy. Uh, The interesting thing about the time in New York was that it wasn't homogenized, and each neighborhood, and i'm talking about manhattan like i didn't spend a lot of time in the other bor- boroughs to be honest um, most of my that's really where i lived and where i spent most of my time but in manhattan all the neighborhoods had a very distinct identity and they weren't all you know there were still a lot of artists who were struggling who could afford to live in manhattan um it was before the the gentrification happened in the 90s so it was a lot a lot more interesting in ways in manhattan at least and then you know i lived in greenwich village from like 89 through through most of the 90s and you know in the 80s and 90s we the greenwich village was like decimated by aids especially among the art artistic community theater community music community um literature poets and stuff i mean it was just like people dying all the time. I mean, it was... Uh, um, the first apartment I lived in was on e- East 11th between B and C, and I lived there with John Ventimiglia for a little while, who was on The Sopranos. In night, uh, what was that? 86. And it was a very, very dangerous neighborhood. And like cab drivers literally did not want to go there. There was a, a, a building across the street that sold heroin. Um, but nothing... Bad have really happened to us. I mean, it just was—you had to be very careful. And the good thing was, it was very cheap to live there, so you had a lot of interesting people, and a lot of artists, and a lot of really cool. It was there was a lot of really cool venues for music and performance art in the eighties and nineties. Some of which are kind of still there, like Pyramid. I think was still there before quarantine, but it's a little bit different. But there was a club like Eight BC that I loved. um, That was really fun. Uh, but it was a very exciting time.
0: Did you ever go to the A7 Club? Yes. That yes. that place is so legendary now. It's just, you know, yeah. it's amazing how these places that I'm sure were nothing to witness at the time have become, you know, like, like CBGBs too. Like, you know, eventually become sort of like venerable institutions, then ultimately legendary spaces.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, it just, it was such a great timing, CBGBs, that you had a place that. It was a scene, you know, a scene basically looking to happen. You know, they had these musicians who were looking for places to play and were living down there at the time, and we're all no, you know, and uh, it was just the perfect, you know, the stars just aligned to create kind of scene.
0: As you kind of said, like earlier, you know, it's it's a it was a time when it was still affordable to live downtown for a lot of artists, and so you had just like sort of a just a massing of creative energies happening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's happening in different parts of the city, like in, I guess, parts of Brooklyn and stuff. But even that is very expensive in a way. Um, You know, um, there was a lot of DIY, you know, that was the vibe, you know, just and and, and we kind of did the same thing. We tried to bring that to theater. Um, the same guy that I'm telling you about who turned me onto these bands. We started a theater company out of our acting school in, in the eighties and just started on shoestring budgets and, and, uh, you know, doing it ourselves and like, you know, putting up posters in the middle of the night all over downtown New York and, you know, that kind of thing and get putting crews together to go plaster the walls with our show posters and, and thinking it, thinking of it very much like a band, like, um, we paid a lot of attention to the visuals like the poster and the program and, and, um, the music that we would use in the production. And it was, it was very much thought out like, um, you know, indie music mm-hmm. you know, we were trying to translate those values into theater and well, we kind of did for a while.
0: It's amazing also the, the sort of deep connection between punk rock and theater. You know, you look at Johnny Rotten, who's always says that like, the performance of Richard the Third was the big influence on him or, or even you look at the cockettes in Seattle and their influence or, or, you know, theater of confrontation, that sort of influence on punk rock. Like it feels like the two have like a deep rooted connection.
1: Yeah. I think because they're, they're honest, um, forms of art and a lot of them come out of a social consciousness, you know, um especially in downtown New York at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. Going back also to downtown New York, uh when Honeychild was on who I, I know is a friend of yours uh, which I want to get to in a second, uh, she talked about kind of arriving in the city and the fact that you had, you know, uh Basquiat DJing and you also had like RuPaul performing and then you had, you know, as we talked about earlier, all these bands happening as well. Did you take in the art stuff that was going on as well at the same time?
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun, um, because the art world, you could just go to opening, like Thursday was in, especially like in Soho or even in the East Village, where there was, you know, when a lot of galleries started happening in the East Village in the 80s, in the 70s, I guess it was mostly Soho, and then that got, you know, kind of very high end, but even in Soho, you could just go to an opening. Thursday was opening night, you could get free wine and meet people, and, um wander in and out of galleries i guess they still do that to some extent but it was very much a scene and in the east village as well um and there was a lot of that's why like like tom and i who started a theater we also started a band in in 1986 like it was pretty much a no wave um uh post-punk kind of thing um but it wasn't you know, that was what was happening. Like you said, Like even Basquiat had a rock band with Vincent Gallo, who became an actor and director. They were, they had a band called Grey. Um, and nobody thought anything of that. That moving in interdisciplinary like that was not a... Um, you know, once you become a celebrity and you do that, then people are very suspicious of you, which kind of happened with me after The Sopranos, but... I was always doing all this stuff anyway. From right from the beginning, like writing and producing theater and making music and stuff. So I never, I never really gave a shit what people thought. Um, later on, anyway, because I felt like, well, I've always done this anyway. It's not just because now I'm, you know, people know who I am, and I think I'm gonna, you know, suddenly do other things or whatever, you know. But, um, and in some ways, that very mindset um, still you know, is, uh, kind of, is how I approach things really. You know, I mean, my wife and I built a theater in 2003 and we started producing new plays and very much had that, you know, it was the inmates running the asylum and we raised money and we just did whatever we wanted to do and hired who we wanted and picked the plays we wanted. Um, the only rule was that they were new plays that had not been done before. And, you know, there was a specific aesthetic, like for the poster art that, you know, either either some I designed, but then we hired someone specific to design. You know, everything had a certain look and aesthetic that we felt was important, you know. Um, and with indie film, I had a movie that I produced and starred in that came out earlier this year at the Metrograph called Cabaret Maxime with a lot of actors, John Ventimiglia in a lot of people that I've been working in theater and film with for thirty years, and a director who is my our third film he raised the money in Portugal. And we did, you know, so that's still kind of what I do, mm-hmm. and and it really came from, you know, the punk aesthetic and and DIY, you know, and and it's still it's kind of the beauty of Instagram in a way. Like I was talking to Tom the Gilroy the other day, he said this is kind of, and Instagram in some ways is like the new pirate radio in a weird way because you can you can get you know he put out a 15 minute um film about the quarantine like a fiction film you know like a quarantine movie like a short film distributing it on instagram and getting it out to thousands of people um targeting thousands of people who have share similar tastes as you And I think we're just really, I mean, I am at least scratching the surface as to what we could do with that without, you know, and um, I started teaching a meditation class the last two weeks that came out of Instagram and people asking me about Buddhism and asking me how to meditate. Um, All of a sudden I'm doing these, you know, I, I kind of put the word out on Instagram, they get the link and then they sign up through Zoom and I do it on Zoom, but it's almost like I have a feeling like the studios and networks are going to get, are getting a little worried about that. They're going to find, figure out a way to co-op that. So it's, it's not so much in the hands of the artists because they really hate that. I think.
0: <laughs> well, no, but I think the, a lot of the reason people really responded to your presence on Instagram is because you are so authentic about the music you like and it's all cool. You know, like I think that was the thing, you know, you never really played it up in interviews, I guess, or like, or, or maybe I was just oblivious to it, but like, Hearing you talk about My Bloody Valentine or hearing you talk about The Feelies or something like that, it's just like, wow, that's so awesome that this person that I love for this one reason also shares all the same music loves that I have, which I guess is the, the you know, the genius of social media is it kind of lets people in and to see these other sides of the person.
1: Yes, it's huge. You know, I didn't, I resisted. social. I wasn't on social media. In October, I was on a TV series and they asked nbt said well you know it'll help if you have a social media and i was thinking at the time because i do do so much indie stuff i published a novel and then with an indie press and then i i was doing a lot of live Lydia lunch you know not together but the same evening the verbal burlesque that she produces and she's she's invited me on, on a lot of those shows in new york and la and promoting that promoting you know um the indie movies that I was involved in and stuff. So I was like, well, maybe I can, this will help. So I didn't know what the hell Instagram was. I was never on Twitter. I was never on Facebook. I wasn't really interested. I kind of looked at it as like a time waster. And then I said, well, what are you going to do with this? And I said, the only thing I feel like that's worth doing is, is just kind of turning people on to stuff that I love, you know, artistically, like books, movies and primarily music. So I was just like, that's what I'm going to do. And I think nobody ever really fucking asked me, you know, uh, I'll be honest. I've been interviewed over the years a million times for a different, you know, and most interview, most interviews don't. I don't know. Most interviews don't know what the fuck they're doing. (laughs) Don't do a lot of research. They ask the same fucking questions everybody else asks. And I don't know why, and it's, you know, I, sometimes I'll do press, I'll, it's not like, you know, it's always like, how was it like working with blah, 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 or what was it like shooting in Prague, or, you know, did you think it going to be hit when, you know. So what I'm saying is that, you know, the, a lot of interviews just, you know, their producers kind of come up with some questions, the, the interviews themselves don't do any research. Now, there are a handful who do a lot of research, and are very good, you know, and really get thorough, I'm not t- talking everybody, but the majority, I'll say don't don't do much work at all, you know they just get handed the questions and ask you these rote things and don't really know you know it's an art that I think is actually very hard to do, and most people who do it don't know how to do it. I hate to say, so like I said, nobody ever really asked um and then when I had the band um which we've been on hiatus for a while and we're about, you know, we just put the record out. That's been, we've had for a while, but didn't really release. We just put it on Bandcamp. We're going to be playing shows again. As soon as we, the Mercury lounge wants us to play a show when they reopen, that might be our first show back. But when we were active between 2006 and 2014, primarily and played all over New York and a little bit in LA and some in Europe. And for the most part, you know, the press didn't give us the time of day because they just thought, oh, this guy was on the Sopranos. Now he's doing a band and they didn't really listen to what we were doing. And they just had assumptions about what we're doing and didn't really ask why I was doing it or what the purpose was. Um, so now there's a different context in a way. And it's really because of Instagram. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. Um and people are actually listening and trying to figure out, well, what is, what, you know, what, is, what are they trying to do, these guys? Because it's, it's not me doing music. It's a band, and it's three musicians, and they're, you know, it's two musicians beside myself, and those other two guys are geniuses. And we write music together, and they're not backing my songs up. We're making music together, and that's the only, re- the only way I want to do it. I'm, I have no interest in doing something on my own, solo or whatever. I love playing with those guys, and when we play together and when we write music together, some, something special happens. At least that, that's my feeling.
0: Yeah, no, I think the record's fantastic, and I think the, the thing that really comes across in, in the guitars is is uh, you know not like that you're aping this sound, but like a an influence of the Voidoids.
1: Yeah, which is which is um uh you know I love Robert Quine. I mean, I think he was maybe the greatest punk guitarist. Period. 100%. I mean, I can't play, I can't play like Robert Quine anywhere near that. But you know that whole flavor. I actually have one of Robert Quine's pedals. I have a MXR blue box that Quine owned, which I'm very, uh, attached to, but, um, you know, that flavor is there, no doubt. Um, and, uh, it took us a long time to really figure out our sound in a way, like in the, when we started, we kind of started from the ground up in a weird way. Um, the origins of the band were very weird, like, in 2005 i hadn't played in a band since the 90s the last band i played and i sang in and wrote some songs and when i had to leave to to start work because i started getting busy in movies and i was replaced um by brenda souder who was in the feelies mm-hmm. the a band that became wild carnation and some of the songs that we wrote they redid with her with her lyrics and and but we're, I'm kind of in touch with them a little bit, which is really cool. Um, so I hadn't been in a band for a long time, but I was I was just really missing it. And I didn't know where to find musicians. So I was at a party and I ran into a guy, Michael Tai, who was a guitarist with Jeff Buckley's band. But Michael was an actor uh, a long time ago. So when Michael was 18, I had a movie together called Postcards from America, an indie movie. And Michael's younger brother played his character as a boy. His younger brother was Omo, who was eight years old. So I'm at this party, and for some reason I asked about Omo. And Michael said, "Oh, Omo's a drummer, and he works at the Strand bookstore. And I, I hadn't seen Omo since he was eight fucking years old. I didn't know what kind of music he played. I didn't know what he was like. But I got it in my head, I had to talk to Omo. So I started going to the Strand, because in the Strand bookstore, they wear name tags. So I'm like... I'll just find Omo because he's going to be wearing a name tag. Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't find him. And I started going like once a week for a while and could not find Omo. Finally, I asked someone and, I, and he said, oh, yeah, he works in the West. I wrote a note. I said, you know, it's Michael Imperioli. I ran into your brother. I'm looking to play music. I heard you're a drummer. So he calls me. He says, oh, my best friend from high school is a bass player. And that was it. <laughs> and from the first minute, it was like, okay, yes, this was the smart move calling this guy. But, they're, they're, but Elijah and Omo are very... What I love about them is they're very, very distinctive. You know, they're not just a rhythm section. They 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 play their instrument as if the, their instrument is the lead instrument of the band. You know, it's mm-hmm. its own voice. It's not just... You know to support the chords of the, the melody of the song it's it's an equal component, and they're very very distinctive and Elijah's also a a songwriter guitarist and singer a, on his own and has done some of his own stuff and now is doing a lot of electronica like the theme music for our podcast he did he did a lot of the original scoring for a movie that I directed, and he's just they're they're geniuses so a couple of years but then i was there was one point where i was like okay we've i've kind of figured out you know you have something in mind where you want to go like when you start and at some point we got there sound wise and that made me really happy
0: oh the band's fantastic but you know you mentioned like you know obviously the influence of of robert klein and, and kind of you know as you said off the top the kind of period in new york which is something that you kind of throughout your career, you've kind of been involved with like I've basketball diaries, summer of Sam. And and of course your book, which you talked about too. What is it about that era? Do you think?
1: Yeah. There's kind of, there's a freedom to that era, you know, and there's a, there's an energy and a passion and there's a, an immediacy. Um, there's a freshness and newness. There's a danger to it. Um, at least in my mind and how I see it, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and, and, you know, like I said, I was a very late bloomer. I was kind of like, didn't, you know, and then all of a sudden the I was in New York was like, you're in Oz, you know, compared to where I used to live. Even if you lived, you know, like 15 minutes away, still, it was completely different. And, you know, uh, um, to go from kind of a, you know, normal blue collar, whatever suburban kind of thing, which I, when I was in high school it was, it, was, it was almost more rural than suburban where I went to high school. But for mo- most of my life, it was Mount Vernon where I grew up is more like Queens or something. And then to be somewhere where people were artists and not afraid, you know, I remember I was in an acting class and this guy was doing an exercise and he was talking about being gay, you know, and I'd never heard someone Talk about being gay, you know, where I came from that you, you had to hide that or you'd be, it was dangerous, you know, um, and just people having the freedom to be who they are and express themselves how they wanted, you know, that was very exciting to me, you know, at that time. I mean, it still is, but I mean, it was, it, it was just the, for me that, that kind of freedom of expression and, and, and it just was exactly what I wanted,
0: you know? Going back to Basketball Diaries, how much was uh, Jim Carroll kind of around when you guys were making that?
1: I don't know if he was around. I never met him. You know, um, that was a bit of a disappointing experience. I mean, I liked working with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. I thought he was really fun and really good, but um, I wasn't too fond about the director. I didn't didn't feel like he... I, I didn't feel like he really understood the material as well as he could have, to be honest. I think, you know, um, he wasn't from that world, you know, um, and and to me it showed, you know, or you don't have to be from that world, but you have to really, you know, not, not just on the surface of this, you know, kids who were taking drugs and getting into trouble and stuff like that, you know, um I think Leo's performance is very good. I mean, he's an incredible actor, and he did a great job. And he, there was a lot of good actors, but I think that movie could have been in the right hand and a much better movie.
0: Had you, like, seen Jim Carroll play before, or had you been a fan of his work before that?
1: Um, I knew his work, yeah. I mean, um, um, I knew the book, you know, for, yeah. for years, and I thought it would be good book. Uh, but I had never seen him play
0: I, you co-wrote Summer of Sam
1: yes I did an executive producer
0: and here we are again talking about that era What was it like trying to capture that era you know on on paper and then seeing that translated to the big screen you know I, I think that movie holds up too you know I, I really enjoyed it when it came out
1: Well we saw the Metrograph did it a 20th anniversary 20th yeah. In, in 2019 and I hadn't seen it in maybe 20 years and it just, I was knocked out by it I think it beyond holds up it's actually more resonant now than it was then in a weird way um well that was listen I was 11 in 77 and my you see what happened was the guy I wrote it with it was his idea and he wrote an initial draft and he showed it to me and what freaked me out was my cousin in Mount Vernon, New York, which is next to the Bronx, which is next to where Berkowitz was, was in Berkowitz of Yonkers. My cousin was beaten almost to death by people he knew who thought he was the son of Sam. And that happened in the Bronx. And that's what this initial draft was about. It happened in several instances in New York. This paranoia and these people kind of anybody who was different suddenly was under different scrutiny. So when I read that his draft, I said, "You know, this um, this happened to my cousin. I mean, I'm obsessed with this." So we started writing together, and I was originally going to direct it, and I brought it to Spike, and he was going to executive produce it, but we couldn't get a deal with me as a director. So then eventually, he he wound up directing it. But that year, '77 was, there was blackouts, there were riots, loot. You know, uh, in the midst of all these blackouts. Um, Elvis died, you know, the Sex Pistols, I think that was the year they toured. Punk kind of was hitting. Disco was at its height. I mean, the sexual revolution. I mean, it was a the Yankees won the World Series. It was this very, and it was really hot that summer. It was just like, just a weird um, mix of things that were going on at the time. And then you had this killer which you've never really had again in New York, this serial killer that people were afraid of and not going to discos and not I mean, it was a very weird time. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: We talked about it earlier, but I just kinda want to get your story, because I just read today that you met Honeychild on the subway really soon after arriving in New York, right?
1: Let's see. I think I, I think she had just arrived in New York. She was a she she went to either FIT or Pratt, I think, um, for fashion at the time. I was like I was already in acting school. I think I was a little bit older. I I'm I'm older than she is. A couple of years older. We met on the train going to Westchester because I think she was an au pair or something at some in in Westchester and I was living I was living maybe with my grandparents or my parents at the for I was like in between apartments in New York, something like that. And we liked a lot of the same music. I think she was really into The Cure at that time. Who I I was not, and but I started liking them because of her, <laughs> and uh, and then I didn't see her for years. For like, I was at pianos for I think we had just done a show, and then she didn't know when we were there. And I went to the bar, and she, you know, and then she came up to me, and I was like, wow. and then you know, she told me she was making music, and I started listening to her stuff, and I love her music. I think it's just really. I think it's really honest and beautiful and there's like an innocence to it and a rawness and um, doesn't surprise me because she's was a, um, as a teenager, just brilliant and inspired and unique.
0: Well, just something about this kind of music or this culture that just attracts so many interesting people that wind up doing fascinating things like here, are the two of you are, you know, Jim Jarmusch, you know, obviously as well, like, you know, there's just so many people that kind of come out of this and wind up doing fascinating things all over the map in, in pop culture.
1: Yeah, it's I think as an as an art form and as an expression, you know, uh, it punk can hold as much as you want to give it. You know, it can be very kind of it can be very like the dictators and about wrestling and about very pop culture, comic booky type of you know, things, or it could get very intellectual and esoteric and, you know, it could be, you know, complex musically like television or, you know, rhythmically like talking, you know, it'll, it'll hold a lot of different, uh, a lot of different approaches, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and it can hold a lot of emotion.
0: Going back to the wild carnation, did you guys play any shows?
1: No, we never played shows. We just were writing. And, um, you know, I, I had just started, I started working, I think I had to like leave the country or leave leave New York for a long period of time. And I think I was, you know, I had never, the band that I was in with Tom, I played guitar and I had never sung in public and it was one thing writing songs in the studio with them and singing. And I, I think part of me was just terrified to eventually have to. (laughs) do that on a stage but uh, you know that's just the way things were i mean i couldn't i felt i couldn't be consistent at the time with them and they really wanted to be and i i think i was going away for like three months or something so you know that it just kind of i just let it go
0: it's interesting that you'd have stage fright over singing in a band yet you're no here you are doing all this theater and and acting at this point you know it's why do you think that is that the two worlds are different
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I guess because I just had more experience by then as an actor and had just been doing it for a long time. Although when I started acting, you know, it it was terrifying as well. You know, I mean, it was very terrifying to be in front of a camera for the first time or be on stage for the first time or do a scene in acting class for the first time because you're putting yourself out there. You know, there's nowhere to hide, really you know, it's you and, you know, and the same, same thing with kind of being a singer, I guess it's, a, you know, there's really nowhere to fucking hide. You know, if you're a painter, you don't even have to show up at your exhibitions, you know, you know, if you're an author, you don't, you know, you don't have to be there when people are reading the book, you know, but you know, for acting, it's like you go on stage. It's like, that's it. They're right in front of you. Um, they, Chris, uh, 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 from, Wild well, Carnation's Actually, has some of the demos and stuff, which was interesting because I, you know, he sent sent it to me. Uh, he came to one of our shows at Don Hills and then sent me the demo. He still has them, so that was kind of cool to actually hear hear what we were doing.
0: You got to put them out.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe you can ask him because they're his songs, really.
0: So, is it the same sort of vibe as they what they would go on to do? Is it sort of like that power pop kind of?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of this the. They were just—they uh, kept the music which they were writing, and um, you know, and Brenda wrote her own lyrics and came up with her own melodies and made 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 them hers, and they're beautiful, you know. They're yeah. really the, the three of them are great uh, musicians. Oh,
0: a really fantastic great. band. Were you like, were you a fan of the Feelies?
1: Yeah, very much so, and and Young Woo, which was their side project, uh, Young Woo actually did a benefit for our theater company once at maxwell's oh that's awesome um but yeah the feelies were um tremendous band yola tango another band from that kind of milieu
0: yeah like it's kind of like was it like coyote records i guess was that label that i think yola tango was on and and did um i think a feelies was on a compilation they put out at least and stuff that makes
1: sense that makes sense yeah
0: it feels like there's like a real distinct kind of sound to what was going on around Maxwell's around that time.
1: Yeah. And it was, you know, R.E.M. kind of fell into that. Yeah. Um, Peter Buck was a big Feelys fan. I think they had, a I think the Feelys really influenced R.E.M. Uh, in a big way, actually. Um, but uh, yeah, there's that sound. And then Galaxy 500 came a little bit after that, but that was a big, Band for me, and and um, really influenced band sound. I mean, which we started out as La Dolce Vita, then we changed the name to Zopa, but called our album La Dolce Vita just to confuse things. <laughs> <laughs> confuse people. It's because La Dolce Vita. There were other bands called that, and it just didn't. So we just said, let's just call it something else. But I think we're, we're you know when we play out, it'll just be Zopa. But the trio of of um, as I, Galaxy Five Hundred the three of them were all very distinctive musicians like Naomi Yang, her bass playing, like her tone on bass and the way, you know, her melodies and stuff were just very original. And Damon Krakowski, the way he, he used symbols, man was just, I remember just for the, when the first couple of times I saw them it really blew my mind. And the sound that they created as a trio was just so big um, and simple, but, You know big and 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 potent um and definitely you could hear some of that in in some of our songs
0: yeah there's like a you know is that pre-nirvana kind of american college rock or alternative music back then it's just it's such an incredible sound.
1: yeah and it was um it was important to us you know at the time
0: you you've opened for guided by voices before right we opened for Robert Pollard. Oh, Robert Pollard. Uh, sorry, that's. Um,
1: but not GBV. But he, yeah, you know, we we became friends, and he was generous generous enough to invite us to open. We were pretty early then. We hadn't done a lot of shows. It was a Bowery Ballroom. My wife and I had Robert Pollard's first art show at our theater, Studio Dante, which were all the a lot of the original collages that are his album covers and the original ones that he made that they made the album covers off of that. We, we, this, we did an exhibition of all that stuff. Um, cause all those, all the artwork is his collage work and it was the first art show that he ever had. So it was kind of like, uh, you know, we hosted him and he hosted us. So that was kind of cool. Um, we also played with, uh, we opened for, um, uh Tommy Stinson at Bowery Electric, which was a real thrill for me, you know. Um played with Steve Conte a bunch of times. Reformation for Johnny Thunder's slot. Uh, but Steve was a good uh a really good uh and we played with Yeah, and Walter played, you know, with the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders and uh Richard Hell and then you know Richard left to form the voidoids, but he, he and then he played his own band, the Waldos. Um, so I'm looking forward to, uh, as I'm moving back to New York cause I haven't lived in New York for a couple of years and, and, uh, I'm looking forward to live music again as soon as that happens. Yes. And then hopefully playing some live shows soon, as soon as they are, as soon as there are live
0: shows. Yes, absolutely. I, I honestly cannot wait for that to come back, Well, this has been incredible and I could talk to you forever. Would you come back at some point in the future for a part two?
1: Yeah, we should come back with the with Elijah and Omo.
0: That'd be awesome. But before I let you go, I, there's just a couple more questions if that's okay. Number one, when The Sopranos was kind of blowing up, uh, you know, well, obviously the whole way through, an incredible show. But like that was kind of the same time that you had the revival of New York, or sort of that you know, meet me in the bathroom, New York kind of scene exploding. Was in that th- was that on your radar at all?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. It was on everybody's radar in New York at that time. Um, it was kind of what started me wanting to play again, because it just felt like, it just felt fresh again in New York, and it felt like good things were happening again, you know.
0: What about, you know, as a former Matador recording artist, I gotta ask you about Matador Records. What was Matador Records like? You, what what
1: band were you with, Matador? Uh,
0: I sing in a band called Fucked Up.
1: Ah, Fucked Up. Very cool. We put
0: out three records on the label, but we're now, right. we're now on merch, okay. so we're still you know, in the M indie rock family. But uh just, you know, I was I was just fascinated about, like, you know, that side of things. Were, like, Interpol and those bands, were they, like, something that was, you know, were you a fan of that stuff at all? Or is that, you know, a revival of something you already saw? And strokes, Interpol. No,
1: I, th- I think there was definitely, they were doing something um, that had a lot of spirit to it, you know? Um, I saw the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs at Mer- Mercury Lounge, before they you know really blew up and that that kind of blew my mind i thought that was really special you know that was a really i forget what year that was maybe 2004 or right before the first album came out but that was you know you knew right away that it was something very uh original happening there you know but the, just the way nick plays guitar and, and 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 her her presence and delivery and all that
0: yeah, absolutely. And, and Nick, once again, here's another person out of punk rock, you know, played in a bunch of hardcore bands and punk bands over the years. You know, it's like that was almost like another mm. punk revival.
1: Yes, it was, you know, and it was a New York revival and it was and and it, and it was a direct link to that scene, you know, and it was people who discovered that scene as young musicians and, and decided to make it their own, you know.
0: Well, one last question before I let you go, and that is being that there's a turn out of punk. I got to ask you about this Green Day Sopranos uh, thing that's kind of become the talk of the punk world in the last few weeks. Uh,
1: so weird, man. You know, I posted a picture of me and Jim, right? Yeah. At a, at a benefit. He was We were doing a benefit for my theater, and he was, we were all signing a guitar. So I'm holding this. I think it's a Les Paul for him to sign. And Jim listened to, like, just, you know, on the comments, and I answer a lot of comments, you know, but for better and for worse. Uh, and I said, he liked Green Day and they're like, really? And for some, yeah, cause he, he was at work all the fucking time, you know? So he spent a lot of time in his trailer and he put in a turntable and big giant speakers, you know, most, you know, movie set trailers has like a, you know, they would have like a CD player or something, you know? DVD player and, you know, whatever system he actually bought like a turntable and these big speakers and installed it somehow in his trailer. So he had vinyl in his trailer. And I remember one day, you know, cause we both liked Green Day and we, he had Dookie and we were just sitting there, you know, listening, rocking out. And you know, I told this fan, You like Green Day He's like, "What record. I said, you know, he had the, you know, and people were kind of like surprised, I guess. You know, you know, the, uh, Jim and I were a lot closer in age than our characters were. You know, um, we weren't that far apart and, and, and we were both, uh, you know what I mean? In, in the show, he's much more of a father figure. But in life, we were, it, that wasn't our relationship by any stretch of the imagination. It was actually when we first did the show, I was already married with two kids and he was single and had no kids. <laughs> yeah. So, it, it, you know what I mean? Um so people, I guess, think they kind of confuse him with Tony Soprano and think he was, you know, whatever they think Tony Soprano would listen to. So and all of a sudden I started seeing these different, you know, news outlets and music outlets picking up the story, which I found very bizarre. Is that, I don't know. It, was, it's, it is kind of weird, but I guess it's uh, it's kind of cool.
0: Would you ever throw on like the television record or, or anything like that in there, too?
1: Well, I wasn't always hanging out in his trailer. I mean, I don't know if, I mean, that was his, that was his thing. But, you know, I had, uh, you know, my own stuff that I would listen to in my, you know, my trailer. But um, he, you know, the idea of putting, you know, a turntable, having vinyl in there, never, never. I I didn't spend as much time, like he practically lived there, you know what I mean? I didn't spend as much, uh, as much time on set as he did. I mean, there were times when I did was there a lot, but, you know, that was practically, like, his house.
0: I think it's the thing that is Green Day, of all bands, you know, and I think that's the thing that, like, sort of took off in punk rocker's imagination, like, I wonder if he liked Rancid, or I wonder if he heard the Plunk record before that, or, you know... Well, they were really huge at the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You
1: know, I mean, then they had the show on Broadway, you know, it was a big time for Green Day, and, uh, you know, so... I don't think he was much. I don't think he was a huge punk fan. I can't. I don't remember him listening to other, you know. I mean, maybe a little bit more mainstream rock than. I mean, probably Green Day's like. That's the the punkest, or punkiest he got probably.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, anytime you want to come back here, Michael, and talk Green Day or Lydia Lunch, we, the door is always open. This has been incredible.
1: All right, man. I appreciate it. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Michael will be back for a part two at some point in the near future. And there's a lot of stuff I should have asked him about. Miracle Legion. He brought up Miracle Legion. I didn't even go in on that. Inca's Records, the uh, label that put that out. Oh, I'm obsessed with it. Uh, Anyway, anyway. Um, Thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. That was ridiculous. That was a lot of fun. Um, and, And he'll be back for a part two at some point in the near future. Speaking of the near future, though. Next episode of the show, coming up this weekend, Joe Wong of The Trap Set and has a, an incredible podcast where he talks to drummers, an amazing drummer, has a brand new solo record out on DECA, produced by a friend of the show, Mary Timony. And uh, this is a fantastic episode. I even remind him about being in a legendary garage rock band. It's a fun one. It's a good episode. Uh, Joe is someone who is an incredible incredibly insightful person and so you know kind of a kind of a, a dream guest to get on the show we go deep we go deep we got a lot of uh, interesting opinions coming out of this one uh this is a fun fun conversation that is coming up this weekend on uh on the show and more episodes next week and then after that and then after that and then after that so i got podcasts we got just and i keep coming up with podcasts remember as always black lives matter the lives of indigenous people matter go out there get informed get involved uh, show up. It's a hugely, hugely important thing to do right now. Donate money, sign petitions, uh, and just just educate yourself. Go out there and, and do that. Sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not gonna need them and it can really it could save a life, you know? Uh, go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Uh, start a zine. Uh, don't mean uh, a zine might not be the most effective way to communicate right now, but like, you know, go, do it. Actually, start a zine. Zines are fucking amazing. I can't believe I'm talking shit about zines. I just finished organizing my zines. Start a zine, start a band, do whatever you can um, under the current conditions. Wear a mask uh, and and love each other. And I will see you next week on the show. Thank you for listening. Uh, it's a Sopranos Week. Sopranos Week. Uh, amazing. I, thank you, Tristan. All right. Love ya.